This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. We got the OG crew in the house today. That's Matt. That's Eric. That's Ryan. But before we get into Matthew 11, there was about to be a knockdown drag out debate I think that was going to happen at this table so I went in and hit the record button starting to get into the cooler months of the year things like that so the question is is are you still a man if you wear a scarf because here we are in Oklahoma we don't live in there's no frozen tundra around here and I just got to tell you I've never been a scarf guy my wife wanted me to be a scarf and peacoat guy and I was just like I I never wanted something wrapped around my neck and I've never thought to myself, oh, my neck is so cold. I need my Adam's apple to have some cashmere on it. So like, what's everyone's opinions on? Because, you know, Ryan said maybe the most offensive thing he could have said to Eric, which was, Eric, you look like a guy that would wear a scarf. And it seemed like you took some offense to that. So where are we at on scarves? I have zero scarves in my, in my closet. Are they all in your wife's closet? You just go over there and get them. Are they so? I have zero use of scarves. Okay. Regardless. I think scarves are manly. Um, I like to wear the ones that like the guys and like the Navy SEALs and stuff would wear when they're out in the desert and they just look really BA. And so you just, you just run around Edmund just like sometimes, I mean, not, not anymore. I mean, back when, when I was, you know, single and probably not the best role model, I used to think they were really cool. But yeah. no, how but would I'm you wear like, them? Would you wear them with? So I wear them wrapped around my neck yeah. with like a Just really cool shirt go. and a long sleeve shirt, like in the fall. And then sometimes I wore a bolo hat with it. You know, I, you know what? Now when I think about it, Golly. somebody should give me a pumpkin spice latte. You were yeah. a complete <laughs> douchebag back in the I day. Was, like, I was. I was a even... douchebag. I really was. Uh, I, I drove a BMW and I and you talk. And you talked about yourself in the third person. I did. I did. And, throughout I, you know, this, and that's why there's Jesus. And that's why we need Jesus. That's That would be a good segue. But the problem is, is Matt's being very quiet about this whole uh, scarf just been thing. Waiting, just been waiting because, to talk. Just no, been waiting no. To talk. So what's up, scarf guy? So so I'm, I'm I have scarves. I've worn scarves. I don't prefer them. But I will say this. Spurgeon wore scarves. He did. And I don't think anyone here would debate that Spurgeon wasn't a man. So I think it's just. He was a, okay. That's a. What? He was all right. Just, yeah. a, just a matter of practice. There are 10 different ways of, of doing scarves, wearing scarves. I'm just sitting here like perusing. <laughs> Brody, Brody, okay, we're, we're, we're this far Brody, in. We're if we're going hey, to no. talk about scarves and masculinity, I think next time you should ask Vody and Owen about that. And maybe. Okay, we can see that. But now I, I'm super curious about this 10 different ways to do a scarf. Is there a way to go through these quickly? Because uh, we're, we're so far down this rabbit oh, hole sure. now. This has Let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. Yeah, right. All right. The first one is the drape. Just, just drape it over. So it's basically a, worthless. Useless. Yep. That's exactly. like decaf coffee. You got yeah, the once around. We go around your yep. neck okay, once. But don't pull tight. That's better. You might, might die. You've got the overhand where you come around. And oh, then that's winter over time. And then over yeah. the top. Yep. Uh, you've got the reverse drape, which it's back behind you. Drape. That's how I wore that's, it. I wore it reverse that's drape. Not, no, that's, not, that's not no, me. That's not me. That's not me. That's not me. I would wear it. And then I would wear it back like that and look like that's not manly. So, no, no, dude, I got no. pictures. I don't want to see pictures. I got pictures. And yeah, no one wants to see we'll it. Keep Let, let's keep going. All right. Let's keep going. You got the Parisian knot. Just uh, sounds gotta, unmanly, yeah, but. Yeah. Fake knot. You've got a fake knot. That's okay. definitely not masculine. Just okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, reverse drape tuck. Ooh, Ooh, now we're getting, we're going no. up. That sounds exactly no. like something you would do, Ryan. <laughs> now that we're under. talking about it. Tuck it under. <laughs> You've got the reverse uh. drape cross. Two more. The four in hand. Oh my goodness. That's like level five on difficulty. And the last one looks like to be the twice around. That's definitely when you die. Okay. So guys, just so we're listening to this, cause I can literally see Ryan's fingers furiously moving. I yeah. think he has pictures of himself in each one of those different 10 categories. So we will post that on our Instagram, hopefully sometime oh, yes. here soon. Oh, so yeah. uh, now this is literally going to be the world's worst transition, but let's go back to the gospel of Matthew. Is that, is that going to be okay? Since we're talking about all this nonsense, no, like a but, scarf, the gospel can wrap us in. Yes. Oh my God. Beautiful segue. Once around or twice around? You already had a mustache. You didn't have to try to make the smoothest transition possible. Well, hey, mustache, how about you read Matthew 11 verses 1 through 6? You got it. 
When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Okay, so this is where we really start to see true opposition to Jesus's ministry. Um, It's really the first time we see in Matthew where it's not just like, okay, this is weird. I don't exactly know what's going on. This is like true opposition. But what what I wanted to ask you guys, because I kind of know where I land on this, but obviously it's well known this part where John is, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And based on your personality, you will read into those words tonality, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, is he like, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Or is it more exasperation, desperation? Like, hey, man, man, maybe I made a mistake here. Are you the one to come or is there another? Like, I couldn't really surmise it from the different commentaries I read. Like, where do you guys land on that? Because it's like, is it misunderstanding, exasperation, sarcasm? I think you can look at some of the context of John's situation. He's in prison. He is in a desperate state. I think he staked his life on the fact that Jesus is the coming Messiah, the, the savior of his people. And I also, you also have to look at like, what was the Jewish context of the Messiah? And so I think John, who boldly proclaimed that, one who's greater than me is coming to baptize you with, with the Holy Spirit and fire. Yeah. Like the ax is laid at the root of the tree. Like he was bold, but I think he was, he was also like other Jewish people looking for something that was not. I think, I, I think it was confusion. Like, I think he was like, he thought the Messiah was going to come and bring judgment. Mm. I mean, we we're talking yeah. about bringing judgment by fire. So it's kind of confusing when he's healing all these people. And, you know, the lame and the sick, which doesn't make sense in their culture, because if you're lame and you're sick, it's due to sin. So I think them coming back and uh, Christ coming back and just healing and not bringing judgment caused some confusion. But when it comes down to it, he did the acts in front of John's disciples and went back to John and knew that John was going to automatically believe it. Yeah. And the prophecy that you're, you were just alluding to is from Isaiah 42. It says to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon from the prison who sit in the darkness. And I think, you know, one of the things he could, he could see is or hear about was that people were being healed. People were going from being blind to, to being able to see, but he was like, wait a second, but I'm still, I'm still in the dungeon. When do I get freed? You know? So I think maybe there was some, well, when does that happen? Well, you could well, almost see in the way he talks to the Pharisees in the beginning of Matthew and in the, in, in the beginning of Jesus's ministry where John is, is rebuking these guys and then he literally ends up in prison for rebuking Herod. Mm-hmm. And you can almost sense this like, he's here and I'm going to get more bold because you're about to go down. Not Ryan, I'm pointing at Ryan, but um, like the Pharisees are about to, like you're, the judgment is coming for you and it's going to be swift. And then it didn't come the way he thought it would come. And I think that kind of caused some confusion, like you were saying, right? Well, I, I don't get the sense that John needed to be emboldened to say what he needed to say or proclaim what he needed to proclaim. Cause we'll, we'll get more into the, the plight of John here, you know, later in some, some future episodes, but I get the sense that Jesus knows, well, obviously Jesus knows John's heart in this exact moment uh-huh. because he gives him, I don't even know if you can call it a rebuke, but his response is the mildest, of rebuke like it is just so mild to where it's like hey go and tell him that all these things are happening and the cool thing about you know go tell john uh, that the blind receive their sight and the lame walk that's isaiah 29 35 and then we have lepers are cleansed and the deaf here that's isaiah 29 and 35 and 53 uh that lepers are cleansed or sorry i just read that uh the poor uh will have the good news preach to them that's isaiah 61 i mean it, he's basically preaching scripture to john to be almost to be like bro i know yeah i know what it seems like right now but the things that have been foretold the thing that you are foretelling and pointing the way to they're happening so it's like it's almost just like hey just relax just a little bit well this is also part of matthew's case like if if anybody has question of what matthew's favorite book of the old testament was clearly it's isaiah he quotes isaiah a ton and he's laying out his case for jews 
who were also probably in similar thought processes to John there. We, we have a Messiah that's supposed to come, but we, he's not coming the way we thought he was coming. And so Matthew is, he is literally laying out his case for the king to be on his throne. And this is why it's because he's fulfilling these prophecies. I think John was just jumping ahead. John, I think when we look at the Messiah, when they thought the Messiah was coming to bring judgment, he is, he's going to come back and do that in revelation. Mm -hmm. But right now he's setting it up. He's giving the ultimate sacrifice so that you have a way to be before God. And so, and if we must set that up before you can come and pass judgment. Right. Well, I want to keep this going, but just real quick, I did want to point something out to you guys. Um, we've talked about this before. We get a lot of feedback about having your own forging table. Like, Hey, what do we do? I want to start this. Like, what do, what do I need to do? And what do I need to make happen? So as I've talked about on uh, previous episodes, Crossway has teamed up with us to create a forging table starter set. If you're watching this right now, you will see the stack of books right there to my right. But this, you know, between our team here and the Crossway team, it's like, okay, if you're going to start a forging table, here are the things that you need. So you need a great Bible. So there's the E. ESV men's study Bible there. You need uh, some journaling uh, materials. And so that's the book of Romans scripture journal edition. So it's the combination of this crossway scripture journal and that Bible that's in front of Eric right now, the ESV study Bible. But then also there's a devotional that's new morning mercies by Paul David Tripp. There's an explanation of the different types of themes of writing within the Bible. So that's the beauty and power of biblical exposition by Douglas O'Donnell. And then just how are you going to operate as a man in this world, as a father, as a chef, Shepherd. So there's the book Family Shepherds by the great Vodi Bapa Bakum. I said Bopum. Vodi Sockum Bopum. There's our first sorry Joby of the day. But just a three-step process for you guys to get that set. So if you go to crossway.org, this is not a paid commercial, but I'm just doing this for y'all's benefit. Crossway.org, create a free Crossway Plus account. So make sure you register the account as well. Put all five of those books in your cart. The books will be in the show notes. And then when you go to checkout, use the promo code BSSP50 and you will get 50% off of all those books at checkout. You will not find a better deal on the internet. You cannot piecemeal a better deal together. So it's BSSP50. That's Bravo, Sierra, Sierra, Papa, five, zero. Again, all that will be in the show notes. But let's go right back in because again, we get some more hints as to how Jesus is taking these words from John. So Eric, if you could read seven through 11, please. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to, into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. clothing. Like, a, like a scarf. Hmm. Mm. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. He said to eleven. Yes, please. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So, again, we get Jesus providing a defense of John's ministry here. So, I think that kind of answers the question that I posed at the beginning for all of us to consider is what, what was Jesus' response to this? What was John's heart? there would have been a significant rebuke. Again, even at this point in the Gospels, Jesus has rebuked and he's rebuked plenty. And so you could assume that he would still rebuke John and he just doesn't. He, again, I said mild rebuke possibly, but then provides an immediate defense of his ministry. He says, hey, he is the one that was foretold in Malachi 3.1 that, you know, he is the guy that's going to prepare the way. But verse 11, but that's where I really want to focus in on. So truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No better compliment is possible for any human being in the history of existence than that. But then Jesus flips it, okay? Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So considering the the gravity of a compliment like that, he makes the point that you can be the greatest person born of woman, but if you don't have me, you are nothing. Mm -hmm. You could be the worst person in the history of the globe, but if you have me, you have it all. And I, I feel like I feel like this is a great message for people who are checking most of the boxes in their life, right? So the people that have a lot of money, 
they've succeeded in their careers. They graduated top of their class in school. They were the best athlete. They were all state. They've married the perfect woman who never fights. The kids constantly just do what they tell them to do. And life just seems to work out for that person. But they're not a Christian. They're not a believer in Christ. It's like, hey, man, you're going to get your treasures here, but you're going to be sorely mistaken when it comes to to what happens afterwards. So I, f- I feel like this is a great way to talk to people and a great way to show people like, hey, just living a good life and having things break your way all the time doesn't work in the afterlife. What do y'all think? Yeah, I mean, I, I see that a lot um, in his de- defense of John and the fact that out of all the prophets, and like he points out Old Testament prophets, John's the only prophet that actually gets to lay his eyes on the Messiah. So what he is coming out and he's talking about He's talking about Messiah, the Messiah, Jesus, and he gets to lay his eyes on him. He gets to meet him. He gets to baptize him, you know? So that's a, that's an awesome thing. So it makes us look at what are our treasures? I mean, John was a guy who lived in the forest, ate locusts and honey and wore sh- sheepskins and not nice scarves. So in, he was able to see Christ. And so I think that's the thing that we need to look at is what, what, and we're going to talk about this in earlier or in later parables and later chapters, but like, where is our treasure? Where does our treasure lie? Does it lie in our, our house? Does it lie in our cars? Does it lie in certain things in social circles? Or does it lie in the, the one and only true Christ, Jesus? Yeah, and I was just thinking, you know, when, if we go just a verse or two before that, when it's talking about, you know, would you come to see or read, shaken by the wind? I mean, I was just thinking of like, I feel like people, even our culture today, are looking for the next big thing. What's the fad, the trend, the style, the thought, you know? <clears throat> is Who's the person out there that's kind of acting like the chameleon to kind of um, steer us this way or that way. Um, or then it goes on and says the, the person in self, self-clothing, a noble, you know, someone showy, rich, famous that we look at and it's maybe even pompous. Um, <clears throat> but no, they, they went out to see this prophet. So they were seeking revelation. Um, and, and certainly they found it in him. Um, and I, and I agree exactly what, with what you were saying. That's great. I think it's kind of an allusion to the family, <clears throat> the, the, the adoption into the family, like the, the guy Kyle's describing in Christ, I have more in common than a little kid in the Sahara who also is in Christ than I do with that guy because we're in the same family. And to, to that point, like John got to see the foreshadowing of Christ's atonement. We get to experience the sonship that comes with being heirs of his kingdom through the adoption into the family. And man, what good news to all of us. Beautiful news. Well, I think it's great considering just the context of this, because again, John, the great John the Baptist is questioning, right? And so for us, we're not John the Baptist. Like we, we, we weren't given that access to, to Christ and we, we weren't given the job to baptize him and we didn't, you know, prepare the way for him. And so guys, whenever you question, just remember John, like related to Jesus, the, the guy, the man here, he is even having major problems getting his headspace around what is happening and why is that? His circumstances. It's because he is allowing his circumstances to dictate his feelings on God. I've used this mild example before, but I had a good buddy of mine lose his job. This was years ago. And he started questioning whether or not God existed. And this is a purported Christian. He and I actually, you know, made our public declarations of our faith in Christ on the exact same day in high school. And then here we are in our 20s, and he's having like a mild bump in the road in his career. And the creator of the universe doesn't maybe exist anymore. And it's like you're being just absolutely enslaved by your circumstances. That happens to everybody. Yeah. And I, I wrote down here, I just doubt it is to be expected, but persisting in it is not necessarily correct you know we because god's word is truth and so if we seek it we should find our answers i really Um, i really like what burke parsons says about like emotions and doubt because like doubt can come come out of our emotional response to an outward stimulus right like losing your job um and he says our emotions can be liars we should always be preaching the truth to our emotions not that emotions aren't healthy and good, but those emotions are a lot of times not the truth. And if we're constantly preaching the truth to our emotions, we can get a lo- over a lot of that. Oh my gosh, I just lost my job. Like I'm doubting God now. 
I think when you look at it though, too, is like, where do we, where do we put our faith? Do we put our faith into the material things or what we think God should be doing? Um, I, it brings up Toby Mac who lost his son like two or three years ago and just watching his journey through everything. Like, you know, Toby's always been kind of a, a, a biblical guy. And so he, he said, you know, I don't know if he went through doubts, but he said he stopped reading this Bible. You know, he's going through a tough time, just lost his firstborn son. Um, but then he was like, man, I just had to put my faith in God in this situation. God doesn't promise me that everything in my life is going to go well. I'm going to have the money. I'm going to have the cars. Like sadness and suffering is going to come. And it's like, where do we put our faith in that sadness and suffering? Do we put it in ourselves and our circumstances? Do we blame God for it? Or do we ask God to be there with us? And God is always going to be there with you. You've got to, you've got to see it. Well, I think you even said it. It's what we expect God to do. God is our cosmic genie. And look, God, look at all the boxes I've been checking lately. And it's just like, because we are humans that are built on a reward system. So if you do these things with your body long enough, these parts of your body will get stronger or better or more healthy. If you eat these foods as opposed to those foods, you do have a reward coming, which is typically you will feel better or you will be in better health. If you do these things in school, you will get these grades. If you do these things at work, you will get these promotions or these raises. But it's whenever the rug gets pulled out from under us to where all of a sudden we're looking around. So let's use health as an example. You've been working out every day and you've been eating kale and, you know, grass fed beef and all that. Oop. And then you get cancer or you get in a car accident and now, you know, you're paralyzed. And it's like, man, all those squats didn't really help me keep my spine intact. And now it's like, now you have this attack of identity because of the things you've been doing because they were tied to, you know, I guess overwrought expectations. There, there is like this dichotomy, right? Though, like, Proverbs talks about a lot of practical things. If this, then this. If you do this, then this. <clears throat> if you avoid this, then this. So God has laid out some moral laws and some consequences or rewards for doing those things. But then like you're but what you're describing though is sometimes that just doesn't play out the way we want it to because we live in a fallen world. That's and right. Even if you, we, right. Go ahead. You nailed the head. We live in a fallen world. It's like, look yeah. at Job. Job did all the right things. You know, he was blameless, but things still happen because we live in a fallen world. Look yeah. at Paul. Look at any disciple. Um, they did all the right things. And how did their lives end? Pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, <clears throat> our, our focus should be to abide in Christ to live with him. So many times we live for him or we, we do things with the expectation of reward. We do this and we get that back. And I, and I, and I agree with you, like in Proverbs, and I'm sure you would agree with me as, as, as well, that it just because it says that doesn't mean it's hundred percent accurate sure. all the time. Right. Yeah, 100%. So there's some people that do things with the expectation they get something back. And there, there are other people that live in fear. And so they will do things like obey God because they don't want something bad to happen to them. Right. Both of those are wrong. Yeah. And it's just mi misguided expectations, misguided, I guess, goals or the, the directionality of where you're going. Uh, Browning, I'm actually going to have you read 12 through 18 because the next section after that has words that are hard to pronounce. So I want to make sure Ryan gets those. Um, <laughs> so I have because, to apologize Because currently, like currently there's a one, sorry, Joby at the table and it's on my head. So I need, <laughs> I need to be in second place here. So if you will read well 12 played. through 18. 12 through 18, got it. <clears throat> From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the, the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. I am 19, sorry. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So I'm really excited to talk about 18 and 19, <clears throat> but let's go back to 17. So the ESV study Bible, which is right there in front of you, Eric, they had an, they had an interesting note on, on this that I'd never really considered before, which was the people reject the gospel and they rejected the gospel in this moment because Jesus and John didn't fit their preconceived notions and expectations, right? That's, that's the summary of, of that note from the ESV study Bible. And like we've talked about it a lot, but it, it bears repeating 
that what the Jews thought was coming was a conquering warrior in their mindset, which was general, military, overthrowing the Romans, you know, kind of that type of a deal. And then they get the, this dirty guy that lives out in the woods and eats locusts and honey. And then you have this Jesus guy who's comes from a crappy city, has a crappy job. His family has no name or, or really weight in the community. Uh, we see from scripture, he wasn't an attractive guy. So this guy wasn't, you know, tall, dark, and handsome. He was probably just dark. And like, those are the things that we get uh, about Jesus. And it's like, because they didn't see, and that's how when we, we've talked about how did the Pharisees and Sadducees miss it? The people that knew the scriptures the most, how did they miss that Jesus was fulfilling all these prophecies? It's because they just didn't fit their notions. And that's, that's a hard thing to get to. Yeah, I, I have a quote from this section from Spurgeon, surprise, um, talking about um, violence in the kingdom and how it's, it's not easy to walk the Christian life. And this quote, this quote was very convicting for me, and I'll, I'd like to read it to you guys too. Um, Frequent complaints are made and surprise expressed by individuals who have never found a blessing rest upon anything they have attempted to do in the service of God. I have been a Sunday school teacher for years, says one, and I have never seen any of my girls or boys converted. No, and the reason most likely is you have never been violent about it. You have never been compelled by the divine spirit to make up your mind that converted they should be and no stone should be left unturned until they were. You have never been brought up or brought by the Spirit to such a passion that you have said, I cannot live unless God bless me. I cannot exist unless I see some of these children saved. Then falling on your knees in agony of prayer and putting forth afterwards your trust with the same intensity towards heaven, you would never have been disappointed. For the violent, take it by force. Man. Spurgeon's rough. He can really <laughs> he, be rough. He doesn't pull punches, but... I think to me that just says like, sometimes we think it should be easy. Sometimes we think like, okay, I read the Bible to my kid. He's going to, he's going to be saved or I'm a Christian. So my kids are Christians. It's just not how it works. There's work that has to be done back to Nehemiah. Like there's work that must be done for the kingdom. Yeah. And there's, there's no, there's nothing that I can say to any of my children to change their heart. It just does not happen. Now I can coerce them. I can threaten them into obedience, but am I going to change their heart? Uh, I'm, I'm not. The Holy Spirit does that. Jesus does that. Um, so we have lots of little tiny conversations, not big lectures and threats um, in, our, in our house for that reason. Can I actually ask, ask a question on that? Sure. So let's just say that one of your kids was, you know, had been getting in trouble or something like that, and some, some things were, were not really going the way that you and your wife would want. So how, I guess, do you influence the process of pointing them towards Christ, pointing them towards the, the truths of Scripture, if indeed what you just said is true, which is like, hey, I can't do this for them. I can't make them listen to me, that type of thing. Like, how do you lovingly nudge or upwards of kicking them in the rear ends to push them towards that end? Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, we, you always have to come back to Scripture, you know, so... You know, and Paul David Tripp, I don't know all his little steps or whatever. I can't remember them, but, you know, it's a, a lot of it's about revealing their heart to them. So you just get, you walk them in, down a path to reveal their heart to them. You ask them questions like, well, what, what was your, what were you thinking? Like, what was your motivation um, in, in this moment? And then what was the result of this? Uh, um, you know, you're, you're getting them to answer those questions. And then um, putting scripture alongside of that. As opposed to, well, I said so, so you shouldn't do that. You know, it's not, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the truth. So in a, in a very short, concise way, that's, that's how I'd handle that. Okay, because that's, you know, I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old, so we're just doing great when they don't crap themselves, you know, kind of a situation. And so it's like, you know, I haven't had to deal with that much because they're so, everything's so rudimentary still. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I think clear expectations have to be set. I mean, there are, it's not like we don't punish. I mean, we, of course, we'll punish. Um, but expectations for um, different offenses should uh, need to be laid out. And uh, we've probably talked about that before, but so it, it becomes more black and white rather than having to be emotional um, in the moment. We can have those discussions and then enact some sort of punishment that needs to, if it needs to be enacted. So Okay, very good. I'm glad you were able to go into a little bit more detail there. Uh, the reason why I really like verses 18 and 19 is because they're not really talked about in this context very much. 
and per, perhaps you'll have a, have a different opinion, but I've obviously gotten into discussions and debates with people that think outright Christians drinking alcohol at all is sinful. So there's kind of like three categories. There's people that think it's sinful no matter what, you should never do it. There's people that are like, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. And then there's people that are like, well, you know, it's okay, but I'm not going to do it. Like I'm choosing not to do it. But does this 18 and 19 not just right out prove that Jesus drank alcohol? Because the context here is for John came neither eating nor drinking. And they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Just the use of the word drunkard there would point back to the word drinking and say that they weren't talking about water or Shasta or anything like that. And so I think that whenever you see Jesus do at these wedding celebrations, when you see him, you know, just comporting himself in the community as any normal, you know, Jew would at that time. And then this scripture here would show that, yeah, Jesus drank alcohol, which I think would be appalling to admit for a lot of, you know, Southern Baptists or Church of Christ folks or, you know, whatever the denomination that's just like, oh, this would never, ever happen in a million years. It was grape juice. <clears throat> it was grape Here juice. Here we go. No, um, Fermented uh, grape juice. I, I, I look at this and look at the Pharisees and Sadducees and what they're doing right now. They're like condemning John for a simplistic lifestyle and then saying that he's got a demon in him because he's so simple. But then they want to say Christ, who's going out there among the crowds, eating and drinking, is excessive. You know, and so they can't, they're, they're trying to find a way to demonize the ministry, which kind of goes back to the beginning of this verse and, and 12 and uh, through 13, where talk of man waging violence on the Lord's truth. And that's the thing. They're trying to take the message of God's truth that Christ is bringing, and they're trying to manipulate it and say that these two guys are simple or excessive. So yeah, Jesus drank alcohol. Jesus, I'm sure he drank wine, but I'm pretty sure almost a hundred percent sure he never got drunk. Almost a hundred percent sure. I am a hundred percent sure. Okay, there it is. I, <laughs> Jesus never People got drunk. People were going to key in on that. So I just yeah, did you a side. I, I know. There's a, there's a sound bite cue, cue the comments. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan. Jesus a hundred percent never got drunk. Tighten down that double. Well, they've, yeah. they've made up their mind, right? Like they're nitpicking at this point. Like they're, they're finding fault because they want to find fault. So yeah. because John was simple, sure. they're going to call him out for that. And Jesus was drinking and hanging out with the people. They're going to call him out for that. So they've, they've made up their mind in a sense. They're going to nitpick whatever. But one thing I like to point out too, is like, look how the people who look how, look how the Pharisees and Sadducees are using this and Jesus, ex, what they call excessive lifestyle with people outside of what the Jew, Jewish Pharisees and Sadducees would think would be good people. So he's hanging out with prostitutes, probably tax collectors, and he's ministering to them. Look at what we're doing nowadays with that. I just heard a guy talk about, you know, like Christianity and Jesus are going to die because what Jesus did is he went and hung out with the prostitutes. He went and hung out with the tax collectors. And even with the, the prostitute, he said, he who casts the first stone, you know, he's calling those people out, but they always never follow up with go and sin no more. And so we see the Pharisees and Sadducees using this to manipulate their thinking. We're seeing that today in modern church on how we want to, they want to manipulate the culture and manipulate the church within the culture. So it's kind of funny seeing the characteristics of this and it's still happening today. Um, let me go back to your, um, your question about specifically about drinking <clears throat> and I'll kind of give a personal note on, on this. So there, when the craft beer stuff started kind of happening in our, in our area, I will, you know, I've got a, kind of had a couple of friends that were like, kind of getting into that. <clears throat> and so we would try different beers together and kind of get into this habit of and not, it wasn't every day, but I would come home and, and have a beer. And, and most of those beers were not 2.5% alcohol. Mm. You know, it was, it was more than that. I, I got convicted after I read, I read a book by Watchman Nee uh, that had a section on that. Um, and, and honestly, I, when I read that I, section about drinking, and it was just a story. I was, I was like, God, that's kind of stupid. But then as I was working on some of the things I do ministerially on the side, I, I was realizing that I was I'm sitting here with a beer trying to be focused on what I need to do. And I didn't feel like I was hundred percent there. I felt like if I was doing God's work and wanting to do it well, that I could not be impaired, not even the least bit, not 10%, not 1%, whatever. And so I felt convicted that I needed to, to let that go. That was on a, just on a, on a personal level. Um, and I, and I guess you guys were kind of alluding this earlier, but I, I don't get the impression that the alcohol that was drunk in this day was anywhere near the, the level or intensity that is 
produced today. So I do think it probably would have taken a lot of glasses of that wine, cups of wine, to get someone drunk. So. And we know that people did have that much because of drunkenness talked about so much throughout Scripture. When people say that, and I know you're not doing this, but I have heard people say that before as like, that's their slam dunk argument. Well, that alcohol back then had this much percentage alcohol and you're drinking whiskey that has like 55% alcohol and all those types of things. It's like, okay, that means we need to be more careful of the lines between sobriety and drunkenness in modernity because the alcohol that we would consume, that we would buy from a liquor store or grocery store is going to be more dangerous. And so it's the same thing like, with any other sin that you could pick. Like they didn't have pornography back in this day or they didn't have smartphones. They didn't have, you know, watches where people could literally watch porn or look at pornographic stuff on them at all times. So that just means we need to be more careful, right? Because the sins are the same. The tactics are different, right? Or or the means by which the tactics are carried out are very, very different. And I want to be very careful here because obviously people might be like, oh, well, Kyle St. Jesus drank, so everyone needs to drink. Obviously not. I don't think anybody at this table would say that because everyone has a predisposition to a sin. So mm-hmm. as I've talked about before, my predisposition is to acting out sexually. So, you know, having to get a, a handle on looking at porn and masturbating and, you know, checking, checking out women, that's the fight that I have to constantly fight. I've never had a chemical like bend or I've never been like, oh man, I can't really stop gambling, but everyone has their own. So if you have that chemical bend, I'm thinking of a few guys I know right now. They're doing what they need to to make sure that that is never a problem for them and their families ever again. But you see a tension there, right? Like there's these tensions in the Bible. There's the legalism versus the antinomianism where it's like, okay, you can't drink at all because you're you're a sinner if you drink or, well, Jesus drank so everything's fine. Anything, whether good or bad, can become an idol. And I think that's the important thing to take away is like some people might have not have a problem with, with drinking, but as Paul says, and I don't know which letter it is, sorry, Joby, um, he talks about like, if that's going to cause somebody else to stumble, you should probably just not do that around them. And at which point, so with that. There's the practical side of, okay, should we not ever eat around fat people? And so it's just like, I <laughs> sure. mean, you could, you could take that to like extreme degrees you, because you sure it's can. like, okay, yeah. well, you're allowing them to feed their gluttonous desires. It's like, no, no, no. I was just eating my own food. It's like just, It's yeah. just being smart. Like I've had a couple of fellow employees that I work with that are recovering alcoholics mm-hmm. and we'll drink. And, but when I go out with them one-on-one, uh, I'll ask them, Hey, is this a problem for you? Yeah. And if it's a problem That's for great. them and it's going to make them stumble, I'm going to have a glass of water or a nice tea. I'm not going to have that whiskey, you know, because I don't want to cause them to stumble. I want to be there and to cheer them on. So it's just, just, it's just like with anything like with drinking or, or, or whatever, just be smart. Don't the be creator of the universe yeah. gave us common sense. Yeah. We have common sense. And he also gave Along us alcohol with, as a yeah. social lubricant, as, as something to see his greatness because yeah. we have taste buds yeah. that can perceive those is things that, and enjoy that, those pre- things. Prevenient, it, prevenient grace. Is that what that would be called? I don't yeah. know. What I got to walk around with a dictionary thing, whenever I'm yeah. hanging out with you. One thing I want to say about this, like when you say seeing God's glory in this stuff, got to watch out for the mysticism. Uh, you see God's glory oh when you drink whiskey because you're getting the flavors. You're getting something that's, that's you know, tasteful. Uh, some people will tell you doing mushrooms will bring you, you know, God's glory or bring you like to another step with God. Got to watch that stuff. I don't see any defense from scripture of doing uh, magic mushrooms. I'm just saying, I've I've heard people say, I've gotten so close to God by doing mushrooms. I was like, speaking of mushrooms, Jesus right (laughs) here is not, is not the fun guy that everybody like always wants to talk about him. He's getting some, he's getting pretty heated here. Don't Don't do magic mushrooms. Well, guys, we've made it all the way here to this exact moment. Ryan, this is your time to shine. I need you to read 20 through 24. There are hard things to pronounce here some of them i'm not even sure how they're pronounced so but everybody get ready with your sorry joby buzzers ready (laughs) set go then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent woe to you chorazin we'll we'll take it woe to you bethsaida Ooh, nailed it or if the mighty works done in you had been done in tear 
or nerd. Satan. No, no, no. Nope. I've looked that up. Let him, let him and go. it is pronounced T A I dash U R. Let's have some let's have some reverence for the word of God. Let him let him go all the okay. way higher before we give okay. him the sorry, Joby. Or tire. Tear tire. You could use it. Depends on you know how you Yeah. This is my dream. I hate you guys. Sorry. He's got a scarf tied Keep going, keep I hate, going. I hate you guys. Uh, but I love you at the same time. Um all right. Twin truce. So for, for <laughs> if the mighty works done in you. Okay. Mighty works done in you had been done in tear, tire, or Satan. <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't help Tire it. or Satan. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable the day of judgment for Tyre and Satan than for you. And you, Capernaum, will be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. Keep going. Through 24. Okay, I know. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So I got to tell you, as I was reading through this, because obviously everyone knows Sodom and Gomorrah. Those were hard, man. I, I put you. Yeah, it's all good. I put you on skates, on ice. It's how it goes. Um, <clears throat> it immediately made me think of the forthcoming judgment for major cities around the globe. Like that's what this immediately made me think of because we don't, we don't really know what it was like to be in, you know, Capernaum or, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't really know any of that, but we do have an idea of, you know, New York city, San Francisco, Washington, DC, Paris, Amsterdam, Shanghai, Pyongyang, Tehran, Moscow, Khartoum, Mexico city, Kabul, Ottawa, Palestine. Like there are plenty of places around the globe some that I've seen with my own eyes and seen the depravity in those, those cities, those cities are not outside of the purview of God's judgment. And that was just something that just really smacked me upside the head when I read this for the first time this week. I was thinking about just some, someone could walk around with cancer and not know it. Right. Um, and they don't know it until they have a scan. And then the doctor says, you've got cancer. And, and so when they receive that information, they have a response. They should have a response. Nobody that I know of would just ignore that and just go on with their life. And so when I was reading this, I was like, well, each of these cities have had opportunities. Each of us around the globe today um, have had opportunities to hear the word of God. There must be a response uh, to that. And so it's almost like the level of truth delivered to you uh, results in a potential greater punishment if you disobey or ignore that. That's how I read that. What are your thoughts? Well, I the the key word that sticks out to me in this passage is repent. And yeah. Jesus calling for repentance, which was his default sermon. Like he went and proclaimed the kingdom of heaven, repent because the kingdom of heaven is here. And not repenting and Jesus specifically calling cities and people out for not repenting should give us pause and should convict us to look inward. Like Browning is saying, like if somebody calls something out at me, I should take a moment to, to really think about that. And if I don't, and I don't repent, what is, what are the consequences for that? I think it's crazy that you bring up repentance. Cause that's exactly what I got from this is Jesus denounced the cities for being unrepentant. And then he basically backhanded them because he brings in, Tyre and Satan were Gentile cities. So Gentiles to the Jews are like, they're already going to hell. Like there's nothing that's ever going to save them, you know? So he's like backhanding them with that saying, they'll believe. Why won't you believe? And it's right here in front of you. I love this because it's not this blonde haired, like yeah. flowing locks, yeah. Jesus that everybody like likes to talk walking about. Walking through handing peanuts to the homeless, you know, it's just like, no, he's denouncing He's denouncing the unrepentant. And I, I think that's like, like if we look at it, like he's going to these cities and he's saying, repent and believe, like believe, like he's not changing his message. He's like, well, I want to get more people. So I'm going to go start changing my message as I go to these other cities. No, his message is the same. And it takes people to believe they're either going to believe or they're not. When the steps to get to him and to accept that are always the same. Yeah. Like to believe and repent, you know, that like it's the same steps regardless of the circumstances. But also, I mean, so this goes back to, you know, verse 11 and 12, where it's like, you know, you could be the greatest man born of woman, but if you don't have me, you have nothing. And then at the very end, he's basically saying 
that it is worse for Capernaum because they've rejected the Son of God than it was for the highest example of complete debauchery we've ever seen, Sodom, right? Like there's not a city like... So for Amsterdam to be considered in the same thing, the entire city of Amsterdam would need to be the red light district. Then it would be sort of like Sodom, okay? And so basically he's saying like, you could have a city that's somewhere between where you are and Sodom, and it still doesn't matter. It is worse for the city of Capernaum to have rejected me. And it's just like, that doesn't sound very nice. It's because they know. And that's the thing. Like we had an argument via text back and forth over a music group playing with another music group that we know that pretend to be like, you don't have to be cagey. It was Shane and Shane playing with with Bethel. You know, here's the thing. Shane and Shane should know. They know what the truth is. They know what the gospel is. And they, they can, and they should know that Bethel is twisting that gospel. There's a difference in playing with somebody that, you know, can twist the gospel than playing with somebody, you know, that's like a Sodom who doesn't even know what they're, they don't even know anything about Christ. They don't even know anything about the gospel. But to hit your wagon to somebody who does and who twists it on purpose, like that's where you have to kind of take the step back and say, hey, am I going to perf- shine a light on this or am I just going to go ahead and just let it happen? Well, let me actually take a step back so some people in the audience have no idea what we're even talking Sorry. about. But yeah. months and months and months ago, it was announced that there was going to be a kind of Christian, you know, one day festival at Red Rocks in Colorado. And, you know, announced was, you know, Shane and Shane, Phil Wickham. I, I can't really remember anybody else. And then it was the, the two people that Bethel used to are still uh, lead worship yeah. at Bethel. And so where you were and where a lot of, you know, people that are on your side were is like Shane and Shane should never have even signed on to do that event, knowing that they're going to be on the same stage as somebody that doesn't believe what they believe theologically. And so where I came from and we're, we're not going to, you know, pull off the scab on, on the debate here, but where I came from is like, this is a one day festival. Like they could have been booked before these other people were booked. Sharing the stage with somebody doesn't mean that you co-sign every message that they could possibly give. And I also said that if Shane and Shane were invited to go play a, a show with Ghost, Slayer, Behemoth, uh, and Guar and the most satanic bands on the planet, and they were asked to open up for him, I would say absolutely 100% every single time you get the invitation, do it. I would and agree so, with you. You wouldn't agree with me? I would agree you with would you. You would agree. So, yeah. so, but, but to, to your point, like it's, well, actually make your point. I my make your point, point is, you. my point is, is like Guar, those bands that you brought up are like Sodom. So trying to go in there and trying to portray the message of the gospel makes sense. But hitching yourself to uh, Capernaum who knows the truth, but chooses not to be the light of it or chooses to twist it. You got, you've got to make some better decisions there. You've got to, we've got to think of this as, more of a, Hey, we're brothers and sisters. And it's like, not, not necessarily, you know, we there's a true gospel and some are twisting it and some are not. Are they truly brothers and sisters? And I think if this were a Bethel event put on by Bethel and they invite invited Shane and Shane, there would have probably been something different as opposed to, and I can you, know, you, that. you know, that, yeah. but, yeah. but again, it's, go ahead. There's, Matt. there's some gray area, I think. And I, you know, I can see both sides of that argument. Like no one knows Shane and Shane's heart, but them and God. Um, but one can't say hitch. Um, <laughs> we completely unhitch from that word. Can't, can't say that. Um, you know, my can I use you lost your point. Did you lose can your entire a, point? Can I, can I use unconditional? I have unconditional love for Shane no, and Shane. You can't. We still oh, listen man. to them on Sundays. No, you can't. So. Well, no, I, I remember what I was going to say. So in my in my commentary, I'm using the, the MacArthur um, uh, Bible uh, study Bible commentary. It says that Jesus had chosen like they Capernaum received um, a harsher like rebuke because Jesus had chosen that as his headquarters. So they should know better and they should know and they, there should be a response and they are seeing all these great deeds that he is doing in the city. And what, what a stark point to make that if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the works that he had done or that had been done in Capernaum, that Sodom and Gomorrah would still be here. Man, if, yeah. that, if that doesn't give you shivers living in Capernaum or now, like, man, I don't know what, what to tell you. Well, those were strong uh, cities with a lot of money flowing through and a lot of, you know, a lot of populace. And, you know, then that's where it ends up for them. And, you know, we're even at this point now where it's hard to even determine where they were on the map because they were so you completely wiped out. Matt, let's hit this last section here. So let's wrap up Matthew 11 with 25 through 30. 
Got it. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't worry, Theo bros. We'll get back to verse 27, but um, I want to talk about um, 28 and 29. I mean, obviously, verse 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is there a better comfort verse in the Bible? I mean, I just, as I read that, it's like, that. that is just... 100% agree. Yeah, it, I, I can't imagine a single verse in context that speaks in the same way that that one does. It is just, it is overwhelming in its, in its comfort. Because again, they're talking about the yoke, which by the way, here's <laughs> for anyone that thinks like I'm a smart guy. I was uh, somewhere around this year, years old, where I saw where it was my yoke is easy. I used to talk, I used to think they were talking about yolk, like, like egg yolk, ooh, right? Gross. And don't be unequally yoked, <laughs> right? And it's yoked anyway. I like so, it's sunny side up. <laughs> right. So slightly uh, embarrassing, right? That, that's what happens when you try to read too fast you and your brain doesn't work that Joby great. No, nah, that, that's like so bad. I'm going to have to call him personally after <laughs> oh, we're done recording man. just to apologize for that one. may not come back. Yeah, that, that may, <laughs> it may be just you three on the next episode. Uh, but th- that's the thing is, you know, his, the, the law, which was, you know, that was a common metaphor. Yoke was a common metaphor for the law in, inside of the context yep. of Judaism. And it was whenever the, it became like slavery. Like the, the law became slavery because of how the, the elites, the, the religious elites of that day treated it. So y'all's thoughts on, on verses 28, 29, and 30. I've read a book by John Eldridge called Get Your Life Back. I can't remember when that came out, but I really enjoyed that book just because it was so different um, than other things I've read by him. And he had something called, that he called the one minute pause. And if you download the app, it's got one, three, five, 10, whatever, 15 minute pauses, but it was just this opportunity to be able to slow down. And, you know, he, he takes you through this whole kind of, you just have to get rid of not getting rid of, of thoughts. Don't get me wrong, but taking, taking and laying down your anxieties before for God. And every time I've done that, um, it's been so good just to quiet my soul just for that minute or three minutes or five minutes, whatever. Um, but I remember he, he, he coached you through, he says, I give everything and everyone to you, Jesus, I want to be in union with you alone. Uh, and the way I'm just interpreting this is there's just, this is this idea that I need to exchange the rule of man for being ruled by the Messiah, because I know that the, in that there's hope and deliverance. I need to exchange working for the man for living for the man, <clears throat> because um, in that um, there's satisfaction. Uh, and, and then personally, just because and I'm sure we're all the same in, in, in different levels and at different times. There's just so much going on in life that it's so easy to be distracted and pulled away from what's most important. And those anxieties can start to pile up on us. Um, and when they do, that can, th- it starts to feel like a heavy yoke. And it's not the heavy yoke of Christ. Christ is gentle and lowly. It's totally different. Um, so I, anyways, I'm not trying to plug that book, but it was a very, very good book. That, that really gave me a new perspective on how to rest in him. John Eldridge is good. He, he understands a lot of that stuff. So I, I, I'd love to read that. That's a good recommendation. Um, obviously, to me, this, is, and this isn't my thought either. This is talking about justification, right? We are justified. So there's nothing that we do um, to receive justification. Um, but I'm reminded of a story that my Sunday school teacher uh, was talking through when talking about justification and how we can, we can view justification by the works. And he told this story of this Greek, this Greek myth, this, uh, this person called Safarian and he was his punishment. And I don't remember what he, what he did to receive punishment, but that's not the point. The point is that he was punished and his punishment was rolling this heavy boulder up to the top of a hill. And then just when he was about to reach the top of the hill, the day would be over and he'd almost get there and the boulder would roll down to the bottom of the hill and he'd have to start all over. And his point, my Sunday school teacher's point was, 
that is what legalism and trying to justify ourselves can be like. We, we, all, we feel like we almost get there and then the boulder falls down. And that's really hard and it's really stressful. And we can put, we can put a, a, a very heavy, unsustainable burden on ourselves. And Jesus is saying, it's, it's not hard. Like justification is yours. You need only me. Ooh. And we should be preaching that to ourselves constantly. Because we live in a society where like check in the box, like, like do this, do this, do this. These things reward you and these things are going to get you. And there, there, there are religions that teach that. There are sections inside of Christianity that, that teach that. And so, yeah, to, back to Kyle's point, what, a, what great news and comforting news that is. And I hear you on the, uh, I, I see grace in this, but then it's also like I see the legalistic point and how if we look at the Pharisees and Sadducees back in this day, I mean, there was laws that were set in place, but they were adding to it. They were making that yoke harder and harder and harder, and they were actually kind of building it towards themselves. But a, a, a quote by Spurgeon really stuck out to me. Sorry, we're another this Spurgeon, is Spurgeon I mean, don't, yeah. don't apologize. <laughs> I don't think you ever have to apologize for yeah. quoting Spurgeon. So if we were to bear no burdens but his burdens and do no service but his service, then we shall find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. May God and the Holy Ghost lead us into that kind of life, and then indeed shall we truly be happy. Mm. So we're, we're talking about legalism here, and I feel like this, can get, this verse can move in our modern-day culture down a different path. And so that's where it comes down to my burdens are Christ's burdens. My service is Christ's service. And so Christ still upheld the law. He didn't hitch, unhitch it. He upheld it. You can say unhitched. You just yeah. can't say hitched. Yeah. yeah. So he didn't Shame. unhitch it. He held it. And he, he did it perfectly. And so we have grace through him, but he also gave us a design of service and what we should do and what we should not do. And we need to follow that. And that's where we're going to find true happiness is following his way. So we're kind of rounding to a close here. So I want to, I want to be fair to the text, but you know, we, we will have to kind of leave it there at some point, but I was reading the <clears throat> MacArthur commentary, which it, do you know if the MacArthur commentary is the same as it is in, in the study Bible or is I it similar? It, I think a lot of the things are similar. I okay. think the commentary that you have is a lot, is, is a lot deeper and a lot more notes than okay. this, but so that this reminded me another of another Spurgeon quote where he was basically talking about how do you, y'all probably have that memorized you <laughs> dorks but it's just like you know where it's like okay there's that tension or that dissonance or that dichotomy between uh you know uh, god's sovereignty and election and also your free will and what what you're required to do <clears throat> i love that that's my favorite quote and so someone may actually need to bring that up maybe we'll, we'll close I, I, with that I, I, so I, I, matt you got it but it was basically verse 27 where it talks about, you know, to anyone whom the son chooses to reveal him, that's where election people are like, yeah, they're, they're all like, you know, super excited. They'd be turned into an eggplant. And then you have verses 28 and 29, which that's the call for, you know, the free offer to all. So verses 20, 29, or yeah, 28 and 29 is like, that's where it's like, that's your dichotomy there to where it's like, there's the election, the sovereignty side of verse 27. And somehow that also you know, coincides with the free offer that you have to accept that we see in verses 28 and 29. And so it's, doesn't make any sense. It, it doesn't, you know, check the, the intellectual boxes that it should, but Browning hop in. Ah, well, give it just a thought. You know, we see all these and, and it'll continue on. So this maybe is just another layer, <clears throat> but we see that Jesus is healing those who have faith but he doesn't, appears to not heal people that don't have faith. And we'll, we'll see it again in several chapters with Peter uh, walking on the water and whatnot. So I'm curious on that as well. Go. We're going to get into parables and parables. Either people are going to understand them. God's going to give them insight or they're not going to get insight to hear the message. So that's the thing that we're going to have to look at. But uh, we'll also get into the unforgivable sin and coming up too as well. And that's me as a Calvinist as a, kind of made me think things through and try to think things in a different light. So I'm trying to understand that as we go along. But I mean, I hear you on, on where you're coming from. So I think when we dive deeper, we'll be able to do it. Well, Matt, let's wrap up with that quote from Spurgeon. So the Spurge says that God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place 
that man is responsible for all his actions. That is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that two truths can never contradict each other. These two truths, I do not believe, can ever be wielded into one upon any human anvil. But one they shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God, whence all truth doth spring. Man. And there's more to be said, but we're going to have to leave it there. But come back here next Sunday where we are going to dig into Matthew 12. So make sure you're read up through there so you're prepared for next week. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Don't forget about the Forging Table starter set through Crossway. Again, that code is BSSP50. Use that at checkout. All that is here in the show notes. And then also I've got a link to our donation page. Guys, we can't do the Forging Table. We can't do any of the stuff that you've guys have grown to love in order to help equip men to push back darkness or across the globe without donors. So we need monthly donors. We need one-time donors. That link is in here as well. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.